Welcome to Unboxing, Play and Profit for the Gaming Curious. I'm Lane Nooney. And I'm Joost van Dreunen. And we're here digging deep on why games matter in today's economy. On the docket today, Friday, August 11th, game companies keep making more money. We'll be talking about earnings from Take-Two and Roblox, and Kai Sennett, the Twitch streamer, causes chaos in Union Square, New York City. All that and more with your two very adorable co-hosts, but first, we've got some catching up to do. wood paneling behind you. Are you on a little vacation? I'm in rehab. <laughs> That's not funny. Okay. Substance I, abuse is no laughing matter. I did not say what I was rehabilitating from. <laughs> did not specify that. It's I'm upstate New York, in upstate New York, at upstate New York, where my big kid has camped for two weeks. And wisely, my wife and I decided to split the party. So I'm in the woods with the big kid because as nice as the rural upstate New York area is, there's no childcare. Last year, I offered a 17-year-old $40 an hour to watch the baby, and this person could not be bothered. So we've concluded that there is just absence of childcare, therefore better to stay in the city. So I'm up here basically making the most of my time in this Airbnb for two weeks, and I've given everything up just to straighten out before the start of the school year. And I feel That's great. Right. I've been working out. I'm drinking lots of water. I can get lots of fresh air. I'm in rehab. What's going on wow. with you? You're a new man. As of 30 minutes ago, because I texted you, I have submitted all my tenure documents. Oh. oh, my God. What a slog. That was like a week and a half of my life spent just manicuring the shit out of a five-page single-space document where I have to talk about myself in a way that is self-glorifying without seeming too uh, grandizing. How does that... Okay, walk me through the process and then your feelings about the process. So you just send all of these documents to all these people and they all agree uh, that you're cool? No. So I just upload them to a third-party system called Interfolio. That's where they go. But they're, many, they're documents that cover dominantly my research and my teaching record. So I have to provide PDFs of all of my publications. I provide a copy of my CV, that is, which is 18 pages long. I provide all of my course evaluations that I've ever received since showing up at NYU. Syllabi for classes I've revised or designed from the ground up. Peer evaluations from professors in my department coming to my courses. And the real kicker is that there's a thing called a personal statement mm-hmm. at, in my department, my school at NYU, that is a five page single space document where three of those pages are about your research. One of those pages is about your teaching. And one of those pages is about your service. Service being ways in, that might be service to my department. So I, I, I serve, quote unquote, on various mm-hmm. committees or service to my field. So I run a journal. I like run a conference, right? I also do what I talk about how I do what I call service to the public, which somehow this podcast is also a part of hilariously. Wow. So 
yeah, unboxing made it into the tenure documents. But and that thing has to be very tightly manicured because you're you're basically you're condensing six seven years of work into a single page, and you're creating a narrative for yourself so that you seem cohesive, and it's just like your summary about what you do, why it is essential, and why you are the cat's meow, so to speak. And then that then gets sent out to, I don't know, like eight to 12 already tenured people who then have to write their own three to five page letters about why I fucking rule. That's a ton of labor for other people. And then those come back. The department writes a summary about them. The chair writes a summary of a summary about them. That goes to the dean. Then there's a three-stack summary that gets written. And then eventually it goes all the way up to the president until, I don't know, God kicks it back down to the to the bottom. Did, and, then so the you pres- heard- and then the president just hopefully signs off on it and doesn't ask any questions. If I was the president of NYU, I couldn't imagine that I would pay any attention to the files in front of me. I'd be like, girl, I got other stuff going on. Did the dean say yes? I should say yes, obviously. But right at any step, this whole process can go to shit, which you hear about all the time in academia. We're like, I don't think any of that's going to happen. I feel very, I feel pretty confident. I've been committed since I got here to not falling into academic paranoia about whether or not I'm tenured. But it's still an unnerving process because it's a regimes of evaluation that are totally out of your hands. It, it sounds uh, very similar to my experience with uh, naturalizing as a U.S. citizen. <laughs> show us, guess, the, show I, us I, every I, plane ride you've been on for the last five years to every place that you don't even fucking remember. I was w- traveling so much for work internationally and, and domestically U.S. And it's, yeah, just give us all your trips. And if you miss one, you're wrong. You're just like, this is such an unfair. So it sounds like you went through the same process here. And it goes this all the way is, up. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm being naturalized into the independent nation of New York University. Right but I, friends of mine who've been naturalized, they have to show proof of that their marriages are real. And if you've been getting a green card, you mm-hmm. have to photos of your wedding or testimonies by people who have been present for your relationship. Oh, things like completely. that. Like yeah, you have I, to sh- not- I, I did that too. It's, uh, it's wild. Congratulations. It's done. You're it's, done. Well, in a way that's totally predictable and very annoying, it's never really done until the president signs off on it. But there is this idea that you can keep adding to it until it gets to the university level, because I'm not going to know if I'm tenured for eight months. This is how long this ridiculous process is going to take. You'd be a whole other person by that time. Yeah, that's right. Like, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I'm a famous podcaster now. I don't need your <laughs> shitty tenure position. <laughs> We're this close. But anyway, I'm sure all our listeners just put that summary on 2x speed. Um, I'm looking forward to playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3. I I downloaded that last week, and and it's it's an absolute blast. Uh, That's how you compensate the stress? Yeah, yeah, I compensate for the stress by accidentally blowing up someone in my party every 45 minutes and having to restore to a much earlier point because I forgot to save. (laughs) It's it's the classic RPG experience. That character did not have tenure. All right. <laughs> yeah, I somehow managed to walking along a narrow ledge, accidentally crossing over an exploding mushroom that blew one of my characters off the ledge to a point where I couldn't go get them to revive them. 
<laughs> they're just like the rock is just at the bottom of a chasm <laughs> too bad you can never find her again and i was like so i just have to like restore to this point before i killed all these sirens like Don't an hour you and a half ago. frantically save i just are you not one of those players that's what i do just like save every five seconds yeah i really should i feel like auto saving has gotten me out of the habit you should. but anyway save well, the dude, shit out of it is it um, good you recommend it's great it? it's great everyone's having a blast about it on the social media and it totally lives up to the hype is it a while i'm here doing nothing i could use a vice is it oh, a recommended vice yes High, rec- high recommendation for this vice. Yeah, you'll get lost. You'll spend two hours just in the character creator. Ooh. Your characters now can have realistic genitalia. It's Okay, say more. <laughs> I wanna, let me see where um, you're taking this. It was a real surprise to me. I was like, I've been out of this genre for a while. I came back and your character could be non-binary. There's four dicks to choose from. There's less vulvas, which felt weird. It's felt like disappointing. But there's a wider variety of dicks. Yeah, because there's in in dick world, there's like the <laughs> circumcised versus uncircumcised, but also uh, the do you want pubic hair or not? Okay. So that proliferates out to four options. There was sleeve, yeah. non-sleeve, Brazilian, yeah. non-Brazilian. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, have the non-Brazilian so, sleeve, please. Oh, continental. So, so there weren't like slider adjusters for different features and things like that, which is a little disappointing. But yeah, I, like I, I made a character that's that has breasts and a dick. I was like, this is great. I love this. And they're non-binary. Who knows how sex works for this person? Fantastic. It's, is it like, like this is the same game with that the druid having sex in a bear form, right? Maybe. I hope so. Let me know where you get to that. Like, keep me posted. Okay. Because okay. is there a option for bear dicks or is that just if you get one i don't i don't know i'm just inquiring information okay we should move on before we get All right, canceled yeah before this podcast becomes not safe for work all right yes I, I heard that the game companies made some money i know that's always my joke i guess the question is always did they make as much money as they thought they would, or did they make more money than they thought they would? We've got second quarter earnings just coming out hot. Who are we talking about today? Roblox and Take-Two, is that right? That's right. Those are really the two interesting ones for me right now. I'll start with Roblox because that one is a doozy. And I said this also in the lead up to, I've been as I mentioned, as we've talked about in the podcast before, like we're uh, adding interviews and I just had one with Robux, his top of mind. On the same day that I had this interview, it came out with his earnings. Wall Street was unhappy and its share price dropped 22% uh, on the announcement that it's increased earnings 15% year over year. So <laughs> that's an interesting one, right? So Okay, so they made 15% more money. Mm-hmm. And Wall Street said, "No, thank you. Bad job. Bad, Bad job. job. You are worth twenty percent less now. Is this yes. because they did not meet guidance? Is that what happened?" The so it's a question of profitability, right? So it's the so they can set their own guidance all day long, like we talked about previously. I think with Ubisoft, where you set yourself a low bar and then really just award yourself a participation trophy. Roblox doesn't really do that. So 
So the thing to know both about Roblox and Take-Two is that, quite frankly, neither of them really cares about shareholders to the degree that shareholders think that they are important themselves. So Wall Street doesn't like it, right? So analysts had expected Roblox to have made more progress with its what it's called expense control, basically getting its operations back into the black because they've been sinking so much money into user acquisition, building out infrastructure, their developer exchange fees, what they pay, their creators, and so on that they are just underwater from a profit standpoint. Even despite the fact that they take 80% of what their creators make, mm-hmm. they still can't make money. What the fuck is the point? <laughs> what the fuck is the point? That's a very elegant financial question. This you is know. why no one pays me to do economic analysis. You're taking four-fifths of what your creators are, are making and you mm-hmm. still can't be profitable? What a disaster. It's for, a- for everybody, right? <laughs> it's, you know, it's not the way that they want to spend their time, right? So Roblox is moving into a different direction as before. So they've defined themselves much less like a game company, more so than a social experience. And in that online world, experiences like the things that you get to do and the things that other people create for you to do that's really what drives retention there. So I guess the thing to know about Roblox in that context is that they are figuring out different revenue models. Engagement is up just fine. Like it's really not a big problem from a standpoint of spending time or money. So let's see here. The number of average daily active users is up 26% with 66 million people. The number of average monthly unique payers is 13.5 million, up 19% year over year. Its payer conversion is consistently well over 20% over its entire audience base. Engagement is up 24% on, a, on an hours basis. So it really, like, it's growing by all metrics. What the problem is for Wall Street is that they're spending a lot of money. And perhaps that has something to do with coming out of privately held into a publicly traded context. In a privately held, like venture funded universe, what you do is you take a lot of venture capital and you subsidize the bejesus out of something and then attract users and do all that. And then once you yeah, get public, you people the, go, you, you gotta do be- the Uber slash Grubhub slash you do the platform thing, right? Which is not to say that, that they're predatory like those companies, but it's really a question of like- 80%. Um- so they've been around for 15 years and they have been very slowly and very, I think, very genuinely building this business. Can they do a better job on the rates? Of course, they can always do a better job. And that's what they're pushing for. And in the interview that we'll share in the next few weeks, it's clear like they're pushing for a billion players on a daily basis. So they have big ambitions. It's really about the difference of a creative vision like Roblox, which sees itself as this new social platform over the next five to 10 years, as opposed to a quarterly improvement from a Wall Street perspective, right? That always has to be either quarterly or annually. And if you can't deliver, then people will move on. So it's just a different philosophy that's valuing the stock now. Of course, Wall Street has its say because that's what it does. But I think, and I've come to know Roblox is as less concerned with shareholder interests, which I like, right? Could they do a better job? Of course, they could always do a better job. But they have at the same time, I like that they're impervious or indifferent to Wall Street analysts. So that that that's a really interesting one this week. But let me ask you a kind of speculative question. Isn't this what every platform claims? We've seen this problem with, let's say, mm-hmm. all of the streaming 
media providers, right, is that their costs don't ever go down. And their argument winds up becoming over time that they have to eat everything else in order to ever be profitable. And it creates this really unsustainable ecosystem, it feels. Is Roblox only successful if it can have a billion users? Because that seems a little, I don't know, problematic That's a really in the good long question. term. It can only be profitable if it has a monopoly. So the, I, I agree with your principle. I, I don't know if that's the phrasing I would choose. So the Sure. So platforms have this thing that they do where early on they subsidize, attract lots of third-party content creators and audience and players and users and spenders, whatever. And then as they figure out that what works for their platform, what works in their ecosystem... They start to basically move in favor of its own interest and against the interests of its third-party content creators. So a simple example, this is not new to Apple. This is not new to any of these companies like Uber or whatever. It's uh, the same thing that your grocery store does when they have a house brand of coffee and a house brand of plastic bags and whatever else because they figure out you're going to buy this stuff anyways. We're going to give you the same quality or similar quality stuff for 50 cents cheaper and then you're going to buy us instead of the name brand Procter & Gamble stuff. Cool. So that has always been around. Amazon does this famously that they just figure out cool things that sell well, and then they just make them themselves at cheaper and sell them for cheaper. So Apple does the same thing. Google does the same thing. Meta does the same thing, where they effectively just look at what works in their ecosystem and then start figuring it out. This is an issue that you see consistently because platforms eventually get so big that they have to move away from subsidizing third-party creators and towards their own profitability. Now, my take on Roblox currently, and this is how they phrase it too, is we're aware of that dynamic, but that is not the way to do it. They don't think so. That They don't believe in a future where you have to basically, I say, be a predatory in your own backyard and try to take the cream off the top. You have to enable people. You have to create a sort of long-term sustainable economy. Can they do that is another question. And that's really the philosophical one that's related to these earnings here. Because Wall Street says, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Nobody in the platform business has done that in the past. That seems costly. I don't want to be part of it. So they're not investing in it. So they will undervalue the stock because of it. But then there is, of course, yeah, what about those 66 million people playing and making things for other people and spending all this money? 800 million bucks for the quarter. That's a lot of cheese. It, It certainly seems to have the momentum it needs. It just doesn't have the financials to get the headlines. And so you have this push and pull. It's really up to, so historically I would say, Mizuki, the CEO, has proven himself uh, only ever moving in favor of his audience. They realize their community is key to their success and shareholders uh, probably second or third in that kind of ranking. I'm interested in Robux because of a variety of reasons beyond the fact that my kid plays it and it's just an interesting story. Like I'm curious to see at this scale if this platform dynamic that everybody else seems to fall to where they move against the interests of their third-party content creators can be different this time. I don't know if they will. We'll see. That's really the, the, the thing that I'm curious about. Look, if anybody can, they can. But let's see. If they- what would moving toward the interests of their content creators actually materially look like? Providing more revenue streams. For instance, what they do, for instance, one thing, and I don't want to give away too much of this interview, but so I asked them, I said, this question, 
when I spoke to them. And they said, what we did, which is every other platform does not do, is they stopped making content the second they allowed creators to monetize. So what in other platform circumstances is that you could be a third-party content creator and I'm the platform and then you make a bunch of stuff and I can also make stuff and I can make the same stuff or similar stuff and cheaper stuff and kind of related stuff. Uh, basically competing with you directly as opposed to as the platform holder, I don't make any stuff. You're the only one making stuff. So I now rely on you as the maker of things and I'm just the enabler of the ecosystem. So it's much more of a municipality than like a market uh, for them. And so that's one of the differences, right? And so to then encourage third-party content creators, they offer subscriptions and all these other ways, like they do uh, digital collectibles. They don't really call it that way, but basically you can limit the number of like special items you create. There's a secondary market uh, for these things where people can trade them, and some of the proceeds will come back to the original creator. So there is a lot of innovation that they're exploring to figure out how do we encourage third-party creators and enable them to do better commercially. And they're focused mostly, currently at least, so they say, on the mid-tier and long tail. So it's not just the top two super creators, like the most popular things. It's the top thousand is really what they're focused on. So that's one of the ways that Robux is tackling that. Will that work? We'll see. They're, I think one of the first things you have to do is uncouple your company strategy from the the sort of from being loyal to these financial cycles on Wall Street. And and of course, Wall Street doesn't like that. So they devalue the stock. It's interesting to decide that where you're going to play ball is on Wall Street. If you're going to try and, and resist Wall Street logic, that feels like a cliff a lot of people have probably gotten smashed against. It's <laughs> worth the effort, but it's really it, one way to, to read it is like naive and say, that's a, that's a nice hippy dippy tech contextual, whatever, contemporary version of some 70s mindset, which, of course, that's like the generation for a lot of the uh, leadership here. Like someone's got to throw sand in the engine. And I don't think that you could do it at this scale and build these things. Then it's going to be all open source, non, non-profit. Uh, I like to hold on to this. Some of the good guys have to have money too. Perhaps there is some kind of middle ground. If nothing else... It shows a shift or perhaps a progression in our thinking about platforms and platform economics. Mm. And that's really just intellectually that that piques my curiosity. Like I have no shares in any of these companies that, that we discuss here ever, but it's the or financial interest. But it's the it's just can it be done? You know, because nobody believed Valve when it started Steam back in the day. Nobody believed Riot when they launched League of Legends. And those became these industry groundbreaking applications and platforms. So somebody's going to have to drive the car here. I'm skeptical as you are, but I'm at the same time, perhaps more hopeful about the whole thing. All right. We'll say more debate for when we actually pull in your interview. In contrast, how is Take Two doing? Take Two is doing fine. They beat their own guidance, which was up like around 1.2 billion, but it missed Wall Street's consensus. There was a solid quarter for them. They had digital net bookings slightly down from 1.3 from last year, but up 22%. Sorry, 1.3 from last quarter, but up 22% from last year. You know, what I find so amazing, like digital distribution accounts for 97% of their total. And then out of all of that money, they have $1 billion of digital earnings, what they call recurrent digital net bookings, 
which is basically another, it's like a financial way of saying it's not just money, it's almost subscription-based money where they have a high degree of certainty that whatever they made this month, they're also going to make next month. And so that kind of income stability is what values, but but catches everybody's attention, of course. A big thing on the docket for them was acquiring Zynga last year. So that acquisition is now closed. Mobile bookings was $680 million, including $189 million in ad revenue, which is a big deal, of course, in streaming video and other digital services nowadays. The absence of or whatever, making it harder for people to target mobile gamers in their ecosystems like Apple have been doing has resulted in a lot of companies moving toward indirect revenue models. And of course, advertisers want to get in on this. And so Zynga has been very well positioned for that. The acquisition itself closed in May. Zynga account for 600 million of Take-Two's overall mobile revenue and about 80 of that was its own mobile titles. The expectation is that they're going to be launching both some titles from Zynga and internally adding another 100 million or so in revenue on the mobile side. So everybody's excited about that acquisition now. There's been a few layoffs or whatever, I'm sure, or headcount reduction there to make things more efficient. But that's all in all going really well for Team Zelnick. And the big kicker is always this, is what's up with Grand Theft Auto? And that's an interesting one. Right? So the, the second things don't go their way, they can just open the spigot and get everybody excited again. So leadership and reiterated that it was confident that 2025 would show a bump in revenue, which everyone, of course, hears as, oh, that's GTA 6. That's the drop. <laughs> that's the moment. And that'd be cool if if nothing if you know nothing about the games industry except what you learned over the last year. That sounds amazing. The thing to remember, like Roblox, Take-Two is really the leader of we don't care about shareholders. They have delayed major franchises like Red Dead and GTA repeatedly to make sure that they have a good product with amazing results. They're going to do that here again. So yes, I'm excited about this happening, but it's Absolutely not happening on the current expected timeline. It's going to be later than that. So it's going to be a t- like some of these shareholders are going to have a wild ride, buckle in and okay, hold on to your hat because it's not going to go as smoothly as you want. Uh, that subscription money you talked about at the start, where is that dominantly coming from? Uh, GTA. So That's those are GTA online subscriptions? They're not subscriptions, but it's such regularity and spending there's no recurrent revenue model in GTA Online? I'd have to admit I don't know. There's not like a pass or something like that? I there is there expansions and like passes, like season packs and that kind of stuff. Why did you throw it in the computer? I am. GTA Plus. Oh, there you go. Launched That's in 2022. GTA Plus, a new membership program exclusively for GTA Online on PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series XS. Mm-hmm. GTA Plus, wow, continue to reap the benefits of the Vinewood Club, the exclusive vehicle showroom and VIP experience. Jesus Christ. Plus members can add a car lift to their auto shop for free, providing more space for vehicle customization and get 1.5 extra rewards for completing the new Junk Energy Time trials along with so much more. Subscribe to GTA Plus. I'm clicking. I want to know how much it costs. What do you cost? $5.99 a month. All right. There you go. Are you a fan? Or do you think this is BS? I would say that I am more so a single player hits 
girly. I don't care a ton about the online stuff. I checked it out a few times. That's too far down the rabbit hole for me. But I can totally see. So here's my theory. Here's the question that where it all comes down to, right? So changing my mind about something, which is a large part of monetization has been, oh, or whatever, the growth in gaming has been explained by saying it's so big now and it's mainstream and gaming for everyone. And I still believe in that model. I think so. But I think what's going to happen next in the industry is uh, that the revenue opportunity is no longer exclusively in the mainstream. It is certainly in, a, in an equal level in exclusivity and the 0.1% of gamers, right? Because I, you couldn't pay me to spend time in GTA Online to the extent that like the biggest players do. That's way too much time, right? In my mind. But the people that do, they care. And you see that sort of like super fan economic everywhere. So upselling those people, I think for a lot of particularly famous IPs and franchises, that's going to be key to their model, right? Give me the gold guns in Call of Duty. Give me the car lift in GTA Online. Like things that seem totally unnecessary to me are going to be hugely valuable to like small communities. And so in addition to having this narrative of like mainstream is the growth driver of the industry, I think it's really the super wealthy, like the deep end, whatever, whales playing these games. That's where you're going to see real uh, revenue potential for these games, especially for the franchise. And that's something I hadn't considered before. Do we have any quantitative analysis backing that up about where does revenue growth actually come from across these different kinds of games? Or is it is that stuff only these companies know? So the short answer is they don't disclose that. And it's because you... So you can grow online worlds in a simple way in two ways. One of them is more humans in there, and then you go towards network effects. And that's been the predominant thinking which is starting to fade considerably. So there's a growing body of academic research that points towards network effects, positive network effects, having a positive impact, but not quite as much as it is for uh, incentives inside of these social, these yeah. online social worlds. So if you look at Roblox, what really drives engagement in some of those, on, in some of its main servers is lots of shit to do. And the more people create stuff, the, the rest of them, want to engage with and stay longer and retain and blah, blah, blah. So what you, of course, see immediately is Fortnite and Roblox and Minecraft and all these online worlds creating creator programs so that they outsource that kind of production and development to others and that because the creation of the game and the con contributing to the game is part of playing the game, is part of being, that separates you from the other players. That is part of how big of a fan you are. So it's really focused on doing that. I think that's a, a novelty. I think that's where, so they don't disclose those numbers because if you have 10 whales, you don't want them out there, but that's a practice that they've relied on for a long time. You would be flown out if you were a very public fan of a game. You know, you have these super fans, influencers get, of course, first right of refusal to do those things. So in many ways, that's always been the practice, but now you can actually monetize it and engage and encourage mm. And items around it and specials and blah, blah, blah. So they're doing that a lot more than they ever have. Wow. Something to keep track of. What earnings are we going to be hearing about next week? Next week, I'm thinking we should do Nintendo and Sony. 
just right. do a, a platform run. Otherwise, and we'll see. Maybe I don't feel like it because I'm a little earned out. But yeah, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a busy few weeks. Awesome. On the topic of fan economics, I was a little surprised last week to to get this notification that there was a level four alarm situation at Union Square, New York. And I'm busy and the weekends with kids, so I was like, whatever, but it's just, and it's not anywhere near. But so it turns out being famous doesn't mean you're smart. As Twitch streamer Kai Sinet, Kinet, I don't even know how to say this, he had organized a PlayStation 5 giveaway, which resulted in a flash mob at Union Square here in New York, like blocks away from where we teach. It got completely out of hand and it resulted in his arrest and that of 65 other people. <laughs> Lane, as the bit the finger on the pulse of everything hip and trendy, what's happening here? What's the word? Woo-hoo-wee. Yeah, so this happened last Friday, August 4th. My office is 10 blocks south of where this occurred. And in grand New York City fashion, I heard and knew nothing until I started seeing it covered on social media. New York is the kind of place where like a, a bomb goes off in a dumpster three blocks away and you're like, do you want to get ice cream? It's like you might as well be talking about something that happened in a different state. But anyway... Yeah, Kai Strand, Kai Senate, 22 year old American live streamer. He's known for kind of YouTube comedy streaming. He is also very notably the most subscribed Twitch streamer of all time. That was a record he broke in February 2023. He's been named Streamer of the Year. This guy is one of the biggest, most watched streamers in America. He's got 5.9 million followers on Twitch, 3.8 million subscribers on YouTube, total views in excess of 250 million. This is a guy who should know better that he has a tremendous amount of leverage over the communication channels of a lot of people, especially a lot of young people. So... What happened was he announced on last Friday that he was going to be doing a lot, like in-person giveaway of PlayStation 5 consoles and gift cards in Union Square in Manhattan. And for those of you who've maybe never been in New York City, Union Square is one of the major MTA hubs within Manhattan in the on the kind of downtown side of it. So there's, what, 12 different trains that come through there. And that was, by his own report, why he said he was doing it. He was like, every train comes here. There's no excuse not for being here. And what he did was not contact anyone about the fact that he was doing this, right? So if you've ever participated in marches or protests or public events, these are things that you notify the city about so that they can appropriately manage traffic, subways, access in and out to public space, right? So they can make sure that things are safe or or managed or that they don't basically turn into what happened, which was that this guy with millions of followers put out an open call for everyone to show up and get free PlayStation 5s. And as you could expect, all hell broke loose. So allow me to ask a question. The so I totally get that you have to go through the proper channels to announce it. And you've... But so where it gets complicated is what is a reasonable thing to do? Like how do you, for instance, prevent such a thing? And maybe a step before that is the question... Where would you put the responsibility in this? Is this something that a streamer 
who is propelled into becoming incredibly famous and well-known and can just bring thousands of people to the same place at the same time, should they know better? Should there be some kind of some kind of PR check in there? I presume he has an agency or a bunch of PR people that are now... Yeah, he does, have an, he does have an agency. They're the ones issuing statements about how appalled they are at the conduct of people at the events. First, it started as a gathering of a couple hundred people, and then it mm-hmm. swelled to police estimates are five to 6,000. There were definitely teenagers and adults getting into all sorts of chaos, right? It's called herd mentality for a reason. And it's a sociological phenomena that when large disorganized groups of people get together, the kinds of checks that they would put on their own behavior fall apart, especially when there's no structure or guidance. And what you had was teenagers getting on top of taxi cabs and like dancing on top of them. You, There mm-hmm. were kids crawling up on top of the shelters that are over the entrances to the MTA. There was actually a very sad story about the halal cart on the corner of 14th and Broadway run by these two guys who had to lock themselves inside their cart because people at the event were like shaking the cart, pushing it around. It broke their generator. They took their condiments. Like those, basically these guys who just make euros got a bunch of their stuff all screwed up, right? And so there was just a lot of problematic, idiotic, city damaging behavior. And of course, none of this benefited from the way the police handled the situation. The police moved in like a phalanx into a crowd of 6,000 people. And yeah, people got really roughed up. There's a video that's been seen millions of times so far of the police basically picking up a teenager and throwing him into the back of a taxi so hard that this glass in the back of the taxi smashed. And they pull the kid back and he's got blood all over his face. And this is one of the things that happens. The New York Times reported extensively on the police saying, we don't want to hurt these kids. We met, we met them with the same force that they showed up with. And it's what we know from the way the NYPD deal with public actions of many types is that what they do is they tend to escalate violence. Mm-hmm. Cops come into spaces and they scream at you to disperse even when there's nowhere to go. Right. And then because there's nowhere to go, you get arrested. They rough you up. Certainly there was stuff like smoke bombs going off, firecrackers being thrown. There's cops out there whining because someone threw a a water bottle at their head. These are cops showing up in riot gear. I I don't have any fucking patience for this. So I I could tell. For me, the problem lies is just the mismanagement of this thing. And so then maybe, and this is another thought I had about this, because you could say, this kid, this streamer is just a moron and he did this. And the re- and then it just got totally out of hand because of the police and then you have media around it. So that spins it on cycle. However, this is also a different generation, right? And so maybe this is part of some kind of budding resistance to a rejection of the establishment among this Twitch streamer generation. And they are not politically, they're not there politically. They're not saying we have these rights or we're pretending, we're defending or protesting one or the other. They're just doing what they do, which is these flash mobs. And then they're provoking this like teenagers often do. They're just doing it at such a scale that it's proving that our current infrastructure and the way that society is organized is just incapable of dealing with this. And of course, then as this overreaching uh, reaction to it. So, where do you, like how would you like where would you put responsibility and what is the impetus here 
Yeah, I, I think these are all great questions, right? Because we want us all, to, we're all trying to figure out who's to blame here. Certainly, one of the things that, that social media permits is the ability to gather assembly really fast. And we can see that in a range from social justice movements all the way to a PS5 giveaway, right? And you've also tapped into a group of people who are showing up somewhere expecting some sort of outlandish, ridiculous, self-gratifying performance, right? Senate was escorted, was basically in an SUV. He didn't stick around to, to calm his followers. He didn't get on YouTube live to tell them to chill out or to disperse. He ran away. And mm -hmm. so what, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Two hours ago, there's a story that Kai said it was condemning the NYC Union Square riot that he sparked. That's the headline is that basically he's saying, how could you guys go out and do this? This isn't what I was supporting. And it's, dude, you set up the conditions of this situation. You don't gather people like this in New York City with no plan. And so there's really an interesting problem here of scale, right? Is it that Senate doesn't understand how many people he can conjure? One bit of the reporting that I saw was talking about him having done similar events in LA, and it's a very different city. There's public transport, but you cannot converge people in the way that you can in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. New York City is a very specific public transportation environment. The response to the city doesn't help. Cops escalate. We've got Mayor Eric Adams out here sounding like a bozo. His statements on this was, our children cannot get their values, their beliefs from social media and other outside entities. And this idea that we would treat the way our kids use social media as a thing outside, rather than understanding, dude, the call is from inside the house. You have to get caught up to speed on what this, what's going on. His other statement was he has claimed that there might have been outside agitators involved, a claim that appears to have no evidence whatsoever, because yeah, some weapons were found on some people and smoke bombs and firecrackers. And he actually said, you don't come to get free Game Boys and bring smoke bombs and bring M80s. The equivalence between a Game Boy and a PS5 is just out of control, right? So the city has no way to even talk about this that's legible to a young person. But if I was making up the rules here, and yeah, Kai said it was picked up, he was charged with inciting a riot, whatever, none of that is going to stick. But if I could make up the law, he would be the one paying for every bit of damage to everything here, right? He should be paying for the, to fix that food truck. He should be paying to fix the covers over Union Square. He should be paying to fix the cop cars that got stomped and every bit of commercial and city repair and maintenance that has to be done from this event should be coming out of his pocket. Interesting. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, of course. I, a few things, starting with the last one. Absolutely. This is yours. If I throw an impromptu barbecue in public, which you're not allowed to, but I do it anyways, and it gets out of hand and I burn down, that's on me. That's my responsibility legally, financially. So yes, absolutely. And it's these cases is like other people they're just street vendors those aren't just some outsiders like these are people that live on these blocks that live in these neighborhoods them you go there once a week to get your jamaican jerk chicken or whatever like your halal cart like those are institutions in their own right and so it's like a mom and pop store getting ransacked 
because yeah. of this bullshit circumstance and you are directly responsible and you should apologize and compensate them and never do that shit again. So I agree with that. I like also what you said with regards to the response from Mayor Adams. He is not a man who has a way with words because he's been in the news repeatedly just saying the most outlandish crap. I've always, of course, taken great pleasure in the fact that what used to be the parental generation did not understand two shits about games. That was always part of it, right? It was like a space where I could spend my time and enjoy myself away from prying eyes. It was, it was almost like a rebel space where it's, you're not supposed to do this. I should be outside playing a ball, that type of thinking. The fact that the mayor goes, he can't even tell a PlayStation from a Game Boy. That is exactly, that is exactly why this is such a big thing. We talked about AOC a few weeks ago, and there's other examples throughout the sort of overall landscape of politicians out there. Where you see people like, I used to play World of Warcraft. I played this, I played that. And so they are much more keyed in or tuned in to what is meaningful or relevant culturally to a different generation, a different group of people. And it shows this incredible disconnect between constituents and leadership. And I think that that's something there they can do a lot of, a big, a better job, right? Not to say that Mayor Adams now has to go take a crash course in Overwatch. It's to say that by being so dismissive of what matters to people, even if those people are wildly out of control, you are not having a type of a political debate where you're bringing people together. Right? You're not overcoming obstacles. You're making everybody else feel like an asshole and they're just going to return the favor. Yeah, the kids are just going to turn off, right? Yeah. I think the other thing here is that we are social creatures and we are impacted by the social energies of the people around us. And so herd dynamics, crowd mechanics become very complicated, I think, which is, I'm not saying that people aren't ultimately responsible for their own behavior, but I think acting like every single one of these people is somehow a pure expression of like rationality in a circumstance like this is a little silly and also just scientifically not backed up. I totally agree. It's the, it's, in Dutch, they say, uh, over een kamp scheren, uh, which, which really tra- translates, you, you take this group of people and just make this assumption that they're all identical. And that's, that just goes against any kind of reasonable principle. You can't say that. Like it's That is exactly the type of polarizing rhetoric that permeates social media, right? And you see it here played out. But I, I, I lastly want to draw a parallel between this event and Pokemon Go. And that I think what's so astounding to a lot of people is that it's one thing when you talk a bunch of shit on the internet, right? Gamers live in basements, whatever, you never see them. And then Pokemon Go was this event that took place in public space. It was a very happy, positive one during the summer. And it was all about friendship and meeting other people and playing. But it was interesting for a lot of people to see purely like how large and how popular these things are. And for the first time, you could see the actual people playing this and how many there were. And I think such a, like a flash mob like that, while very poorly organized and while there's all this other negative stuff around it, I don't think people truly realize like the scale and the size of the impact that these technologies have, because now they congregate in this way. I don't think that people are expecting it to go off the rails at this scale so quickly. The response is totally inadequate, but it's also just like the misunderstanding of what's truly moving our society in that way. Then Gaming so often is this Petri dish where you see these things. This is another one of those examples, just like Pokemon Go. 
Absolutely. And the interesting point of difference there is that in a Pokemon Go event, there's a structuring force, which is the game itself. Mm-hmm. And that this kind of impromptu PS5 giveaway lacked any kind of structure, right? This is basic experience design stuff, right? There was nothing to guide or organize people's behavior once they were there. And then the second point I'll close on is that for all of the talk about this being misbehaving kids or kids having their brains rotted by games and social media and influencer culture and whatever, the person with the most charges against them by the NYPD is a 31-year-old man. I'm just making the point that a lot of this has been framed around young people and their relationship to this kind of media so that we can trot out these old, we can all sound like grandpa yelling at a cloud, but a grown ass man was like the one biting and scratching at the police. This is just a more complex event than these headlines can really reflect. For a dull day in New York City, in the world of gaming, I'll tell you that. I know. How do you think, how many people do you think would show up if we got an unboxing and we're like, we're giving away autographs in Washington Square Park. We're giving away cop- copies of our books. There's this undisclosed location. I just, the, right. the visual that stuck with me the most of that is like him, him driving off in some like Escalade and just like 10, 12 people clamping onto this and just falling off as it starts to accelerate. I can't imagine wanting a- anything or anyone so badly that I would do that. Unless perhaps my, my child's health is in... I was going to say. You know. All right. So I guess the unboxing live of meet and greet is confirmed. We just need to figure out a date and time and a place. That's right. Maybe GDC. We'll do a GDC event. Oh, that would be super fun. Yeah. We uh, are also submitting our GDC panel proposal today. And, you know, we're fingers crossed that we could do a little unboxing sesh or maybe, yeah, meet and greet. Buy us some beers. There will be no PlayStations or otherwise hardware-related no. devices handed out for no. free. No. That's right. Free books to the first five attendees. That's what we can afford. <laughs> there you go. That's the spirit. All right. Should we get to some pones and owns, Yost? Pones and owns. Here's my own. Which I've... So... I find it very exciting that Ralph Lauren not only dropped digital boots in Fortnite, they're now also making a real life version of them. And it's just, I think that's an own, not because I care about Ralph Lauren. I have, I think I have a t-shirt of theirs from like five years ago. It's Ralph Lauren. Yeah. Ghost. Yes. Yes. That's it's it, Google's the same. Okay. Lane Nuni. Whatever. It's my point is, is that I find it. I, I think it's an O because there's this like resistance and resilience in digital fashion to keep pushing that agenda, and gaming is still like skeptical of this. I'm still optimistic about it, and I, I just like it so much. Here's Fortnite, and they're doing whatever the hell they want, and I think that is. At some point, you have to venture out as a creative, and so maybe sentiment isn't there. Maybe consumer adoption isn't quite there, but you have to keep pursuing and pushing boundaries. And I think that's a real win. So for me, that's an own in the sense that it's look, it's out there, people doing it. I'm excited to see big name brands and big companies take risks. I think that is always a good time because if they fail, it's spectacular. Like Meta and it's $10 billion in VR. 
that's just watching people burn money. And if it works, awesome. Now we get to have this new thing. Keep riding that train. I'm all for it. Amazing. So the shoe themselves is known as the P-Wing boot. It is pretty sick looking, though I can't imagine what I own that this would go with. Probably uh, a jumpsuit, made... Lane. Probably one of your <laughs> overall jumpsuits in some associated That's color. Like That's a... true. So they were making only 300 units at a price of 250 each. There you go. So these are pretty sick looking. So very cool. What's your what's your my pwn of the week is a little game history lesson here. The Verge two days ago covered that the Gizmodo editor in chief sues Apple over Tetris movie. What's going on here is that Dan Ackerman wrote a book called The Tetris Effect in 2016, and I was actually surprised to learn that was I had assumed when I saw the Tetris movie that had been an option of the Tetris effect, Mm -hmm. right? Because that was the most recent history to come out about Tetris. It turns out that is not the case. That there was, they did not consult with Ackerman. They claimed to have not used his book. And this gets into a very, so he's suing Apple and the this entity called the Tetris Company, which is the corp that holds the IP to Tetris. Mm-hmm. I don't know a lot about the history of that, but would love to, to dig in more, as well as the screenwriter for basically saying that they ripped off the look and feel of his book, his The Tetris Effect, which I have not read, but his argument is that he positions, he tells the story of Tetris as a Cold War spy thriller, mm-hmm. that it, it's a nonfiction book. It's, it is based on historical information, but there are speculative parts to it as well. And this is that the movie also takes that framing of the Cold War spy thriller, and he feels like he was ripped off. You know why I think this is a pwn? It's definitely a delicate topic for those of us who do historical writing. I was dismayed to see a lot in the comments, people saying things like, this author doesn't own history. And it's, we don't know about what history is until someone writes about it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not like we have complete access to what happened in the past or we know the truth of it already. Right. This is the process that historians go through to actually document what occurred. And you do have rights to the way that you represent that. Now, there's been a documentary on Tetris. There's been quite a number of writings that makes things more complicated, obviously, for Ackerman's case. A lot of people think he's likely to lose, but I definitely had some sympathy for him. And it just seems silly that Apple wouldn't just throw money at him just so they don't even have to deal with this. Like how many thousands of dollars an hour are your lawyers? Now you have to deal with this lawsuit. I would have just paid the man off. History is written by the IP holders, Lane. <laughs> okay. I do, but so here's a question for you quickly on this. It's for someone who spent so much time talking about Apple. Why are you so down on Apple? Because it it turns out you don't actually have to love or care about a company to be a good historian of them, right? I did get this one Amazon review I got from this guy who was like kind of angry that I wasn't more congratulatory about all of these men who I was writing about to explain the ways in which their privileges might have impacted their historical conditions was a bridge too far. But in this Amazon review, he writes, it's not even clear to me that the author likes computers. And I was like, this is the presumption that you need to like something that is a corporate product. 
in order to be able to produce a good history of it is literally what's wrong with so much computer history in the popular discourse, right? Is that people come to it as fans, they come to it thinking we need to show devotion and love. And that's why our stories about them suck for the Mm -hmm. most part. Um, It's why our frame of reference is really limited, right? But I thought it was hilarious that it's not even clear that the author likes microcomputers. <laughs> yeah, I was I, like, I, I didn't know that loving them was a prerequisite to to being the more, a good of the them. More, I think that's what it does. I, I would explain it the other's way. It's like, if you love something, you can critique it. And if you love something, then you can take it apart and put it back together and make it better and really see the truth of it. Like the same way that like modders do this, right? They have this phrase that say, if you like the game, you play the game. But if you love the game, you mod the game, right? You, and that's and that is not criticism to the original creators. Mm. Like your game is half baked, let me finish it for you, you dumbass. It's no, I, this inspires me so much that I want to really find the, a little deeper truth to this thing, which I think is what historians ultimately do too. Like you can't not care about the subject matter, but in the process, your criticism is part of. It's almost like a love language. Right. Which I don't think that's where we are in society that people like your reviewer, that's not their thinking, obviously. (laughs) On that note, next week, we know we'll be talking about earnings and we'll be waiting for whatever chaotic event the game industry or game culture throws at us next. But we'll join you next week. And until that time, good night and good game.